In today's episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Sahel Sikora, Salesforce CTA and founder of December Technologies. Through the episode, we cover so many interesting topics. We look at Sahel's early career, as well as exploring the 14 years he spent with Salesforce. Sahel shares insight on the roles he played in that time, explains his involvement in the foundation of the CTA program and what his own CTA experience was like, plus describes what he saw in the very best Salesforce professionals he worked with when he was the vice president services lead, a role that saw him oversee hundreds of Salesforce specialists. Finally, Sahal talks about his current business, December Technologies, the problems they are solving, why there is a need for vertical CRMs, why he isn't building on Salesforce, his approach to building a team, and what he is most excited about for the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So, Hal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. No, my pleasure. I'm really, really excited. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us and taking out the time to chat. Um, I've got a lot of questions planned for you. You've got a really interesting uh, career. You've done a lot, seen a lot, and been around the ecosystem for a long time. Uh, but I always like to look backwards and start at the very beginning. So wh where did your interest in IT uh, come from, and, and what did your kind of education and early career look like? The interest was, I wouldn't say forced, but was brought to my attention. Both my uh, parents were bankers in India, and um, they were part of the early modernization of the banking system, and they were both selected to uh, introduce computers into their, their banks or the bank that they worked for. And I remember my father coming home one day and saying, you're going to learn how to use these things because this is what's going to run you know, everyone's future. And it was like, it was the summer of seventh grade, and he signed me up for these computer lessons, which were starting to, you know, take uh, hold in India. And I only went because uh, all of the classrooms and the labs were air conditioned, and you could spend from nine a.m. to like seven p.m. And when it gets to like one hundred and twenty degrees in summer in India, where I came from, trust me, that was the best place you could be. So I had very basic motives <laughs> to learn computers, which was the air conditioning. But, you know, one thing led to another. And then um, I did some extra work uh, on computers during my college years and uh, undergrad years. Uh, I did some, you know, freelance work, jobs, etc. And then after I graduated, that seemed to be the only uh, path forward. I originally wanted to be an aerospace engineer, and when I when I did not get an acceptance into an aerospace engineering program, uh, that door was shut. And uh, looking back, I'd say it was a smart decision. So, so but what did you study? So I actually studied uh, a bachelor's in uh, electronics, somewhat of electrical engineering uh, work. So um, that's what I did. It was it was an undergraduate program where we, um, you know, mostly studied things about AC DC motors, transistors, things of things of that nature. Uh, my final semester elective was actually in radar systems, which was a godsend for me because um, I used to love airplanes. And then to have an elective that allowed me to study how radar systems work was great. I enjoyed every moment of it. But as with any EE program, there was a fair bit of programming involved. And, you know, we had a final semester paper, which had some level of uh, programming. Pascal, I believe, was the language that we used uh, back in the day. You know, one thing led to another. I did some extra computer work during my undergrad years, uh, learned how to code in C, C++, you know, four GLs like DBase, Fox Pro, et cetera. It seemed to be the only option after I graduated. Let me put it that way. So your, your first role was as a programmer? That was your you, you move into the workforce? My first role in my life was actually as an instructor teaching 
people how to program. And um, it, it's something that I've held very near and dear to me for all my life. Uh, I love mentoring and coaching and teaching because uh, I think it helps you learn and, you know, get better. Like even today, if I'm teaching someone something and if I've taught something in a certain way, someone will ask me a question that will force me to take, a, you know, like a maybe a 15th look at the same problem. Then I might come up with a new way to solve it. Um, so it's something that I've always loved doing. But that was my first role. My first role was actually... Uh, working for this firm in India where we built computer curriculums, capitalizing on the boom that was taking a hold in in, in southern India for uh, computer coaching of all types. So, so then how, how did you transition into, I guess, I'm presuming that would then move into a delivery-focused role in your career? I was an independent consultant slash developer for a long part of my career. Um, I would say almost until uh, until I started my life at Salesforce um, or my employment at Salesforce, I was actually somewhat of an like an IC slash independent contractor. I learned a lot of things along the way, you know, Java and a lot of AI technologies. There's a platform called C Beyond, which a lot of people who came from that time know about it, but you know, I, I don't know if people remember it anymore. And all of the boom in the app servers like WebLogic and WebSphere and so on. I learned how to run those platforms, operate them. So for a long time, I would say up until 2000, I would say mid 2006, I was an independent contractor slash consultant doing a lot of hands-on, you know, development, design. In fact, my contract role prior to me starting my career at Salesforce, I did development design production support. It was the closest thing to a full stack uh, developer slash DevOps person uh, that you could think of. And I don't think DevOps or full stack was actually a term back then. That's what we did. Like, you know, I, I worked for a car manufacturer as a contractor and we pretty much myself under the guidance of an, a more senior resource uh, and a couple of additional like, you know, temp staff org resources. Uh, we pretty much ran the entire integration platform for this car manufacturer here in North America. It was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, your day could be writing code, talking to the business or, you know, doing production support uh, at night. You know, I've done weird stuff like, you know, cut over from WebSphere to WebLogic or deploy, you know, new JVMs on Red Hat Linux and learned a lot like, you know, the nuts and bolts, so to speak. So. So if you look back at your early career now, are there any lessons or, or moments that you think kind of set you up for success? Yeah, I would say, obviously, my father recognizing that computers were going to play an, an oversized role in my life was definitely one of them. The second one was a friend of mine brought me into a job, uh, I, I would say my my first year of undergrad, like the summer after the first year, where we... Um, we would go door to door selling a new brand of soda that was being launched in India. It's like 120 degrees and you're going literally from store to store trying to convince them to stock your brand. And the deal was that for every 10 crates of soda that we purchased from the distributor, we got 11th crate free. And that was our margin, basically. So we would sell 11 crates, but pay only for 10. And then we would divvy up the money. That taught me a lot, actually. Um, I, I would say that's that taught me the importance of there's a time in your in in everyone's life where you focus on learning, not so much on what you get out of it in in terms of money and things like that. I probably lost money on that job because I would take 
an allowance from home <laughs> just to, you know, fill gas in my motorbike and stuff like that. And I don't think I ever paid my folks back <laughs> that money. So it was not a very well-run P&L, but it definitely taught me the the value of going door to door and grinding it out. Um, in fact, it's something that evolved into me when people would later on in my career ask me, like, what's your secret for a long career? I was like, you know, yeah, you can be brilliant, but most people actually make long careers out of attrition. Like you really need to have the ability to last it out there if you want a long and a fruitful career, if if you're going to pack it in. Um, I know this is an Asia pack uh, podcast. I'm going to use a cricket term. Like I think careers are like test matches, right? You, you've really got to dig in for the long haul. It's it's not like a 2020 game of cricket, which is done in like, you know, a couple of hours. So I think those are two big things that I learned from my early career, which I continued. On my first job, um, I actually learned a very important lesson in life. The job that we had uh, was with a startup, you know, with the, with the education. And, and, and the person who was running that startup had finished his master's in the United States and come back to India. Uh, and he was a big fan of, you know, uh, Stephen Covey and uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, things of like that, you know, the book. Uh, and the one concept that I took away from that and I, I hold dear to my heart even today is, you know, the circle of influence versus the circle of concern. So um, I try to always focus on things that are within my influence and not really worry so much on things that are concerning, but not something that I can influence. Um, it's wasted calories, in my opinion. So, Yeah, 100%. I think that's a good lesson for anyone uh, at any stage of their career, right? It's uh, what can you control? How can you control it? And uh, there are so many factors uh, that you can't control. And uh, back to your your, your cricket uh, mention, like you are going to get a few ducks throughout your career, right? But it's about staying resilient and uh, and and keep plugging away until you get your next century. I mean, the best of them bat at what, like a 52, 53% average? Like that's like just a little over one in two shots. Like I would say most... Most people with a decent middle management career are probably doing much better than a 52% average. So, you know, as far as sporting analogies go, I, I'd say, yeah, that's, that's very accurate. You're going to get a few ducks uh, in your life and you just got to, you know, come back the next day, show up the next day and, and keep going. Absolutely. So when did you first hear of Salesforce? When did I first hear of Salesforce? Um, I would say mid 2006, um, I had not heard, I knew what CRM was because I actually worked on the CRM and integration platform for a North American, uh, for a car manufacturer here in North America. I understood the concept of CRM, but I I'd never, and I kind of knew a little bit about Siebel CRM, which was like the de facto standard at that time. But I had not heard of Salesforce until one of the recruiters reached out to me and um, started talking to me about this new company and they have professional services and they want to expand into the enterprise. And they felt that my knowledge of integration with web services and backend systems would be valuable. Uh, plus the fact that I had some domain level knowledge, like I understood what a lead meant, for example, like, you know, you didn't have to explain that to me. So they felt that it was a good fit as their enterprise team, consulting team was getting ready for, for growth. That's when I, I first heard about Salesforce. I'm a first-generation immigrant from India. I, I, I came to the United States to work uh, on an H-1B visa. And so I had some visa, you know, status things. And really my first meeting, I, I told the recruiter, I'm sorry, I, I can't even talk to you right now. Maybe call me back in four months. Or if my situation changes, I'll call you back. And 
sure enough, like my paperwork moved from one step to the next in, you know, two and a half months after our first conversation. So I called him back and said, hey, you know, my situation has changed. And if you guys are still interested in it, he was like, yeah, absolutely. We're still interested. Nothing's changed. And that's when I first heard of them and followed along, you know, series of interviews uh, before I accepted my offer. So what was it that attracted you then? Because obviously, I guess at that time, there would have been lots of different companies out there hiring, um, lots of different options. I guess the, the the concept of what Salesforce were looking to achieve would have been different to you know what a lot of companies at that stage were looking to achieve. So did you see it as a, an amazing opportunity or was it, was it just another job at that point? And was there an element of risk to it, I guess? Um, I don't think there was an element of risk there because I... I was being hired to do more of what I was already doing, which is integration, backend systems, make a CRM platform, talk to the core systems backend and things of that nature. But I really didn't know much about Salesforce or Silicon Valley or, you know, San Francisco or startup culture. I'd say I was, and it probably worked somewhat in my favor and somewhat against me, as in I was completely ignorant of how to approach this. But what really interested me uh, was the uh, interview process didn't seem to be overtly focused on, can you write like this weird algorithm to do something in Java? I'm like, I don't see how I'm actually going to use that in my daily life, right? Um, I'd spoken to a couple of other firms and one firm was like, write a Java program to figure out how many different phone numbers you can create, uh, you know, from a phone keypad. I'm like, uh, I, I don't know, like, what's the function here? Because I know phone numbers are not generated sequentially. I had worked for a telco in my in my life prior, and I knew how phone numbers get assigned. So I was like, this doesn't actually make any sense. But at Salesforce was not like that. Like, they were very focused on how I can, they were really focused on my, you know, EAI and systems integration work. And that was something I was very comfortable with. Um, so it just seemed like, you know, a good thing to do. And I mentioned visas. Um, I had gotten to a point where I was like, I'm going to try and maybe focus on my career. Uh, and if things don't work out and I have to go to a different geography, Australia, New Zealand, or, you know, somewhere else, Singapore, I think Salesforce was just getting ready to start an office in Singapore at that time. It was a really attractive proposition for me, Canada. I was like, if I'm not going to get my green card here in the United States, um, I might as well be with a company that has some international exposure. That way I could probably just go like relocate to another one of their uh, offices and continue building my career. That actually was really the big driver for me to take my, my first job. So integration and uh, was, was your kind of niche at that point. So you were hired as a developer. That was your first role? No, I was actually hired in the role of a technical architect. But um, as far as leveling guides go, it was, um, I don't even think Salesforce hires people at that level in anymore uh, in ProServe. Or they did for a while, but they don't anymore. But yeah, it was pretty far, you know, down the, the, the leveling guide for me. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my first year and a half, I wrote code C Sharp. Um, remember, when I started Salesforce, there was no Apex and there was no Visual Force. There were S controls and you could essentially write your own web app and expose it using a custom tab. On my first Salesforce implementation, I actually did 85% of my work was writing .NET and C-sharp code for a credit card processing form, which you couldn't do natively on Salesforce at that time. So Crazy, isn't it? When you think like that, because obviously everyone now knows Salesforce for what it is, but you were there 
like you said, I didn't even know that there was an Apex back then. Yeah, there was no Apex. There was no Visual Force. Uh, we, you could write code in JavaScript using something called S-Controls. If you had to build some custom UI, you could build it in JavaScript. And S-Controls allowed you to call the API, the Salesforce API. Um, but other than that, I mean, if you had to do something custom, let me put it this way, right? If you had to write a batch process, you had to write it on some other platform and then ETL the data in and out of uh, out of Salesforce. There was no Apex batch. That's that's how I started my career. In fact, my first two engagements, I did very little actual Salesforce work. I did some of the usual setting up a custom field and workflows. And, you know, um, there was no, I don't even think, there was no process builder. There was, it was just workflows and field updates. I was a huge fan of outbound messaging when I first started my career at Salesforce. It allowed me to send a message to a backend system. Then I, I could write code in multiple languages on the middle tier. So it, it was a lot of fun. Wow. So you, you were hired as a technical architect, and obviously that was in 2007. So what other roles did you hold within your time at Salesforce? I mean, I got promoted a couple of times, and you know was, the work was similar but larger in scope and potentially important. Eventually, at one point, I expressed a desire to start managing people and you know expanding my career uh, prospects from rather than just be an individual contributor. I eventually managed a pretty decent-sized team, about 80, 85 architects, before I left uh, professional services and joined uh, the platform product team uh, as a product manager. And that was, again, like I went from managing people and client-facing work to now, you know, building internal. And it was pretty deep into product management because I started my product management career at Salesforce uh, doing uh, some CDC uh, the CDC API or Change Data Capture API. So that required me to take a look at the Salesforce platform under the covers of the Salesforce platform to see the guts of how it was built. And it's amazing what they do on the platform. It gave me a newfound appreciation to how easy it makes the life of other people, especially the people who use it to, you know, at their enterprise. Yeah, it's a pretty unique view, right? So many people work in the ecosystem, but so few people get to see under the bonnet. Yeah, which I did, enjoyed every bit of it, but it was a weird kind of timing. I had become, a, you know, I had gotten my green card along the way. You know, I was at my 10th year, almost at my 10th year anniversary. And then an ISV came, you know, knocking and they were like, we'd love you to consider coming and taking on a role with us. And I had done a lot of prosope work. I had now done like about nine, maybe 10 months of product management. So I kind of was getting the hang of it. But this was a an opportunity to take on more of the responsibility of delivering the overall end-to-end product. Um, and uh, so I took that opportunity and I left Salesforce, I'd say about a month, maybe a few days less than my, you know, like my 10th anniversary. I actually left Salesforce to go join this ISV, which was which was interesting in itself. And you went back to Salesforce? I did. I, I spent about six months at the ISV and then took a two-month break due to some personal reasons. Um, then uh, someone that I had worked with and I respect a lot at Salesforce uh, asked me if I'd be interested in coming back. Um, and I said, sure, why not? We definitely have a conversation. Had a conversation and decided to come back into a similar role. It was ProServe, but it was um, specifically leading the financial services vertical within professional services. Um, and um, that was, you know, an interesting four years as well. Um, so, yeah, I did, co- I did go back to Salesforce and spent another four plus years there. I did 
get my 10-year anniversary out of the way. Um, for those people in the ecosystem, Salesforce uh, calls the 10 plus years club as the COA club. So um, I did make it to the COA club. I got a bunch of jackets and bags and all that fun stuff. And um, was, I think, actually one of the last COA club events that they used to have in San Francisco with a black tie dinner and all of that. Uh, I remember going to pretty much the last one because, yeah, it was the last one because after that, the next year we were all in lockdown and I don't think they brought that thing back uh, after that. So uh, who knows, it might come back at some point in the future, but you never know. Hopefully, because I imagine it's uh, it's well, it's some achievement being with a business like that for ten years. So it's great for people to be able to enjoy and to celebrate that. But if you look across your two periods at Salesforce, like, is there like one major achievement that really stands out amongst them all? Here's the thing: I, I, I think one of the things when you're an employee of Salesforce really is you kind of seed uh, the spotlight to your customers and your partners, and rightly so. I, I think that's the right way to do it. I would say not a lot I can publicly talk about in terms of the work that I did, uh, but um, I'd say being part of the team that brought the the CTA certification uh, to the world was uh, would definitely go down as one of my top three. Uh, the second one would probably be taking on delivery responsibilities for what was probably the largest Salesforce-led uh, ProServe implementation, and that happened to the last two years of my my life at Salesforce. Uh, and then the third one is really all the relationships that I built. I mean, I know it, it started as a CRM company and now is a platform and there's a lot of things to Salesforce today, but some of my best friends are people I met at Salesforce. I met my wife, who I'm married to right now, at Salesforce. So there's a lot that Salesforce has given to me, uh, both professionally and personally. Um, but I'd say the relationships, the CTA, and probably you know, working on one of the largest Salesforce-led, you know, ProServe implementations was probably three big things. Uh, there's a lot more, I, you know, that we did, but uh, some things you can talk about, some things you can't, so. Well, I've got three questions all, all that cover each of those. So just the first one, when you say the largest Salesforce-led, oh, I appreciate you can't talk dollar value or anything like that, but when you say largest, are you talking user base? It's actually largest in multiple ways. It's user base, it's complexity, it's uh, somewhat of a regulated industry. Um, and from a Salesforce professional services standpoint, it was a, a program that the Salesforce ProServe team was leading, uh, at least for the first you know two years of, of that implementation, maybe three years, uh, because I left, I, I think, towards the last towards the latter half of that implementation. But really, from the day the contract was signed to actually standing up, you know, the entire team of architects, uh, solution architects, business architects, getting the developers, you know, onboarded and handling client expectations at the same time and, you know, making sure that whatever we design and, and, and you know, develop will actually scale, working with the product management and engineering organizations because I don't think they had ever... Um, they had had some other large customers, you know, uh, before, but I don't think any of their large customers use the platform as extensively as this customer uh, did when we started the engagement. And, you know, I, I'm still aware of the engagement today, but um, they're really using everything, right? I mean, there's very few customers that of that scale that use pretty much every part of the product stack, including MuleSoft, Marketing Cloud. Like, I think the only thing they don't use is Commerce Cloud, honestly. They use pretty much everything else that there is to use uh, in the Salesforce ecosystem. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, now I can see why that was uh, such a big project. In multiple ways, it was, I, I would say in any which category you look, it was probably the largest uh, for Salesforce uh, and one of its very firsts. So. Yeah, wow. And then on, on the CTA uh, part, so um, you mentioned you were involved in kind of standing that up. What changed for you both professionally and personally when you became a CTA? Obviously, the Trailhead team today with Suzanne and everyone else, they do an amazing job. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Karen Hennessy. Uh, I don't think she's at Salesforce anymore. She's, she's moved on to other things. But she brought this amazing team of partners and internal employees together. Um, I was part of a, a pretty large team. Um, we put the questions together. I remember writing a whole bunch of the multiple choice questions and answers for the integration section. Honestly, when I got my CTA, nothing actually changed for me um, the first maybe year or two years because nobody really knew what it was, right? I believe I was like the ninth CTA uh, to be certified. For me, there was nothing about CTA prep. Like none of these things, like there are study groups nowadays and there are people that give up like two years of their life to, for me, it was like, I got an email saying, hey, you want to sign up for the beta because you helped write some of the questions? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And I remember I was actually going, taking my family out on vacation. Uh, and we were flying out on a Saturday, a Sunday morning. And I actually drove like two hours on a Saturday morning to a test center. And because it was beta, you actually had to do like 225 multiple choice questions to get past stage two. Uh, it took me like two hours to get through the whole thing. And, and then when I was on vacation, I got an email saying, we'd love to, you know, get you in and face the panel and here are some of the dates available. I remember that was the only time I actually logged into work on my vacation because I got the email on my handheld device and I had to go find a place with some better, you know, uh, cell phone reception so I could connect like my, the 4G puck that I used to carry um, because I had to send a, a request for travel approval to my boss saying, hey, I, I need to go to San Francisco for this. Like, can you approve it? And I just walked in, you know, I, I saw a room, the panelists, like eight, nine people I knew about. I knew five of them. Um, the four that I didn't know, I was like, okay, whatever. We'll see how it goes. Um, and that was it. But two years after I got my CTA is when people started realizing what it meant for the ecosystem. And I think not being able to get as many through is what finally asked, forced people to start taking like, wait a second, why are only... I don't know, like 35, 40% of the people who appear or pass, like what is so amazing about this? But fast forward all these years, I, I think being a CTA panelist and a panel judge as well as a CTA and using it in my career, it just really helped me become a better problem solver, right? Like it also helped me learn the art of pattern recognition because at the end of the day, unlike other platforms where you pretty much you can do whatever you want, Salesforce has a sandbox you can play in, so to speak, right? And there are things it does to prevent you from, you know, getting out of this little box. Uh, and really, as an architect on the working on the Salesforce platform, it makes you better at looking at the problem and saying, oh, here are the four things I need to do to address this issue for this customer. Uh, and it really helped me become a lot better at that. And it, it helped me solve things a lot faster, too. So... I think more than the CTA, the process helped me become a better architect and a technologist. Uh, and that's something that I'm super grateful for. Yeah, that's consistent with what a lot of people that I've had on the, the show, um, especially now you say people invest two years of their life. Like 
obviously the outcome is what everyone wants, but the reality is going through that study, that practice, that drilling through that process makes you a better architect, no matter what the outcome. Outcome is not in your circle of influence, so... That's it. And then your your third point was about relationships, right? And um, and the relationships you built and uh, and kept from your time at Salesforce. Now, your last role, or one of your last roles, I think you were VP uh, Services Lead, which I, I imagine the size of the the U.S. market, you know, the the talent in the U.S. market would have seen you work with some of the very best Salesforce professionals in the world. Um, what really stood out to you about the best? What could they do, or how did they approach things that was different from your average person? I would say the first thing they the best on this in this ecosystem do better than anyone else is really not assume that there's only one way to solve a problem. I, I've seen a marked difference between people who take a problem and say, oh, we got to build all of this stuff on the platform versus someone looking and saying, I don't think Salesforce is a good use for this particular problem statement. Let's figure out the best way to do this or solve this problem. Parts of it may be at, on, on the Salesforce platform, but parts of it may not. And that's what the best do better than anyone else. I'd say that's probably the biggest differentiator. And then being an employee, uh, obviously ha- you have some advantages. Like you can, you can look at things, you know, uh, under the covers that are not exposed to the outside world. You have somewhat of a better access to, you know, engineering and product leadership, not necessarily by a lot, but enough that if you know stuff gets really serious you probably have a, a few more eyes to help bail you out or teach you a, a lesson without it coming at the expense of the customer and i'd say that's those are two pretty great advantages you know being in proserve with salesforce uh, while working on that platform and i think that's true for any company right I, I, you could say the same thing if you were at ibm or oracle or Microsoft or, you know, it's just that having that backend access is, is definitely ma- makes a huge difference. And is it the, a case of like the, the, the best operators knew when to leverage that? The best operators knew when to pick up the phone and phone a friend, right? Uh, <laughs> and a lot of times phone a friend is just a Slack message or uh, pre-Slack, it was Google chat. But yes, y- you knew when to ask for help and you knew that someone would have faced this before or something similar before, right? Um, you, you alluded to the fact that I was, you know, a services leader. Um, the last year and a half of my career at Salesforce, I actually brought all of the technical architects in North America together from the various acquisitions, you know, both from uh, the, the prior model metrics acquisition to Commerce Cloud being acquired, Demandware. I had a team of like, you know, about 600, 650 people odd rolling up into me geographically, North America, Canada, US. And if you were someone on who worked on that team and you were faced with this technical challenge on, on the platform, you'd probably have four different answers to how to solve that problem under 15 minutes of you asking the question. So beyond relationships, just that having that knowledge, uh, you know, and that, that epicenter of all of the you know, knowledge in one place, I was a huge advantage and I always encourage people on my team to use it uh, and then share it back, right? It's it's not, it's one thing using the knowledge that you get from a, a colleague or coworker, but you also want to give back. Um, and I always encourage that. So you uh, obviously, yeah, you, you leading huge teams and working across major, major projects. And then you took the decision to leave Salesforce and, and start your own business. 
which I can imagine day one was very different to what you'd been experiencing uh, at Salesforce in terms of having to set up your own desk and, uh, and go from there. So what was that transition like and what was the thinking behind that decision? The transition wasn't necessarily bad or difficult because uh, being in ProServe uh, as long as I was, I always had a remote job. I always chuckle when I see this these massive Twitter and LinkedIn discussions on remote versus hybrid versus everyone has to be in the... I was like, this was our life for like 15 years before it became a real thing for most other people. So for me, really, it was like I used to wake up and saunter on to my work from home desk anyway, unless I was, you know, getting, you know, getting on a plane. And and that had stopped the last two years of my career because of, you know, uh, the pandemic and no one was flying anywhere. And customers realized like... Yeah, you can pretty much get the similar or better productivity and not have to spend all this money on travel dollars. And so it was like you pretty much worked out of your home office. So that transition wasn't too bad. On the business front, really, yeah, it's definitely been interesting because what I set out to do is when you don't have the big logo behind you, people definitely listen to you because they look at they look you up on LinkedIn. They're like, okay, this person probably knows some a little bit of what they're talking about. But there's a huge difference between that and then getting a signed contract. So that's definitely been uh, a very interesting ride. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't be here today without, you know, my co-founder, Jason Stone, who's also a CTA and spent a lot of his life at Salesforce. But, you know, together, uh, I think we're headed in the right direction. Your business is in the, the banking space, right? And I believe your idea is for um, vertical CRMs for regulated industries and your target market is, is banking. So why, why do you think there's a need for these regulated uh, industries to have vertical CRMs? My target market today is our banks, community banks and credit unions, I would say under 5 billion in assets under management or AUM. There are a few reasons why. One, when you're a, a customer of that size, you're obviously not going to outspend, uh, you know, the J.P. Morgan Chases and the Wells Fargo's of the world, right? Like, I think J.P. Morgan Chase is on track to hiring, like, I don't know, 5,000 engineers or something next year is what they claim to want to hire. Small bank is not going to hire 5,000 engineers. So, but at the same time, in order for you to be able to serve your consumers uh, and be their preferred uh, financial partner of choice, you really want to be able to compete, you know, with better products, better service, and that should become your differentiation. So how do you give a better product and a customer service and a differentiated experience to your consumers without having the money to spend uh, the billions of dollars on, on tech? Uh, the only way you can do that is by, you know, going and acquiring, you know, software platforms that help you do these things in one place. And that's what we aim to build for a bank slash credit union. Um, it's our goal that in our target segment, a customer should be able to get up and running uh, on our platform in under 60 days with as little customization as possible. And they shouldn't need to. We are not trying to build a platform that allows a customer to do, build whatever application they want. If they want a low-code platform you know, to do something else, um, there are many, many platforms to choose from. That's not what we want. We, we want to build marketing, sales, and customer service for a, a bank or a credit union under 5 billion with one login in one place with one database. So that's our goal. And we feel that will help these institutions go a lot faster uh, and 
actually be able to punch above their weight class, so to speak, when it comes to competing against the larger banks uh, for their customers' share of wallet. So the next point I think will surprise a lot of people because um, you mentioned you uh, you and your business partner, both Salesforce CTAs, both with a long uh, history in, in working for Salesforce, working with the platform, but your business isn't built on Salesforce. And you've kind of answered this in a way um, when you were talking about the best architects earlier. To everyone listening to it, it would have probably been the obvious choice for you to go and build on Salesforce. Why didn't you do that? There's a couple of reasons. One, I don't even think we could even if we wanted to, right? Because Salesforce doesn't really have an ISV program that allows me to build marketing sales and customer service in one place for a segment of customers and then offer that up as as a platform license. So it's just it's just not even possible even if I wanted to. So that was the primary reason. The second reason really was we worked long enough at Salesforce to know what it's great for. Um, and in our situation where we hope to have multi-tenant platforms with a multi-tenant platform with many customers in the future, things like release management and you know uh, rolling out upgrades and stuff like that. I spent about six months, I told you, at an ISV. I've kind of lived that life for a little bit, even if not as much as I would have liked to. We knew enough that it was not really something that we wanted to take on. My co-founder and I both have similar backgrounds prior to our life at Salesforce. And really for us, the ability to control our destiny in terms of how to roll patches out, do upgrades, what we can roll out, what we can roll back. We really wanted total control over that and not be uh, at the mercy of the, the metadata API, so to speak, which is really not very complete if you think about all of the other platforms like Marketing Cloud and, and so on. It was not something that we we could have actually used to build a long-term business. Now, what we lose out is obviously the reach of the app exchange and and the ability to go and tell everyone, yeah, we are built on Salesforce. Like, you know, we, we are secure. We It's SOC 2 Type 2 compliant, GDPR, et cetera, et cetera. So there are things that we gave up, but we willingly gave them up because long-term uh, I don't think you could actually run a uh, fully uh, integrated marketing sales and customer service platform just because it kind of cannibalizes some of Salesforce's business too, right? Like not that we are in any way, shape or form a competitor to Salesforce. Uh, I wouldn't even begin to think about that for many, many years down the road. But the reason why Salesforce wouldn't allow it is for obvious reasons, right? Salesforce wants their customers to use service cloud and financial services cloud. And and, and th those are all great, but the scale at which we are doing it for the customer segment that we are going after, they really can't afford software licenses that allow you to do all of that. So price is also a, a huge differentiator. We're talking to banks that have four branches and 60 employees. Uh, they are not going to be able to afford $100,000 worth of licenses every month. The, the solution to solve their problem looks a lot different than a Salesforce or a HubSpot or even dynamic CRM. Any one of the big enterprise ones, right? They require a different type of solution. Uh, and that's why we cho chose not to build on Salesforce. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. And uh, you mentioned banks looking to hire 5,000 engineers and things like that. What, what's your stance on building uh, like a team for, for your startup world, your, your product world? Like what, what's your approach? What do you think is an optimal team? I've been spending a lot of time, you know, uh, following people on LinkedIn, Twitter, doing a lot of reading on, you know, what this will look like when it, it gains traction and 
you know, we, we start landing multiple customers and we have to run a support team, et cetera. I'm a strong believer in hiring talented individuals and giving them responsibility for decent areas of the platform. I'd say we are probably going to err on the side of hiring fewer people, you know, especially from an engineering standpoint, but spending more money on automation and, and, and tooling. We will be faced with the age-old SaaS challenge of growth and hiring, you know, uh, people to sell and solution engineers and so on. Uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, but I don't think this is an industry that will that necessarily lends itself to product-led growth. So we are going to have to invest in sales, and there we'll make the appropriate investments when the time is right. But from an engineering standpoint, um, I'd say it's probably going to be small teams of people who are empowered to make decisions as long as they follow the frameworks that have been laid out you know, for us as a company. Uh, we, and we'll always, always focus on that. And I guess um, final question for anyone that's interested in the business, like what, what are you excited about for the future of December Technologies? What, what do you see that future looking like? We are at advanced stages of conversations with multiple banks and credit unions now. We're about, you know, 18 plus months into our journey since we first put hands to keyboard. And we're getting to the point where we have an MVP that we can actually deploy to our, our first customers. But what I'm really excited about is all of this coming together on one platform in a shared database, right? It's one thing to have a lead and then, you know, convert that lead into a quote and an opportunity and things of that nature. But it's another thing to have the application come into one one database. And, you know, if that application doesn't get converted into a client, uh, it's then going to launch into its own, you know, marketing campaign. And that's the other part, right? Like everything that we are building is being built for banks. So when you log into our platform, you see clients, you don't see customers or if you log into the credit union version of our platform, you see members because credit unions have members and banks have customers or clients. So those are all the small things that we are looking at, you know, integrated to backend banking systems. It'll be pre-built. Like if you are uh, a customer that has, a, let's say, a core banking platform from Fiserv, we'll have, you know, working with our connector partners, we'll have pre-built connectors to Fiserv. So you're not going to have to come in and stand up, you know, a brand new integration platform and, you know, start doing things from scratch. So that's really the exciting part. And then we're obviously, you know, AI is the phrase uh, or the place to be in. Uh, but everyone asked me that question, uh, do we have an AI strategy? We do. But really for us to execute on our AI strategy, we are first going to have to get this industry away from PDF forms and actually have online data collection and acquisition. So it's a little bit multi-step, but yes, definitely there are things we are working on both for document recognition, document generation, things of that nature. Some of the more, you know, easy to do things with AI today, like, you know, helping people write emails, uh, things of that nature we are working on that are exciting. But yeah, there's, there's a long way to go for this customer segment before we can have a true AI strategy that'll make a meaningful impact, right? It's, it's one thing to say we have AI. It's another thing to say we are having, we're going to make meaningful, impactful, uh, you know, changes to someone, to a banker's life using AI. So. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, the, the business evolve and, uh, and yeah, excited to see where, where things go. If anyone that is listening wants to reach out, pick your brains about anything throughout your career, um, lessons, experiences, journey, where's the best place to find you? 
I'm on LinkedIn, so hail space Sikora. You, you can look me up, um, or you can try and you know follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is kind of awkward because Twitter used to implement the 140 characters. I called myself abbreviated talk or A B B R E V talk. So I'm not active posting, but I'm an active watcher on 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 Twitter. Yeah, feel free to reach out to me, uh, and I'd be more than happy to give you my my two cents. Yeah, just don't ask me for you know customer names, customer lists. <laughs> that will get you blocked. So <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you so much. It's been uh, been a real pleasure to have you on the show and to hear more about that journey that you've been through in the ecosystem and and everything that's to come with your business. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. And uh, I look forward to continuing to work with this ecosystem and eventually building our own ecosystem uh, when it comes to CRM. Thank you. Thank you.